Lord, we do thank you again for the opportunity to come together to, to, uh, to be centered and focused on what you would have to say to us this morning through your word. What a humbling thing it is to realize that we are dependent upon you um, for everything. And yet what a great grace it is to know that you're good and you're kind and you're merciful and you have reached down to reveal yourself to us through your word and, and by the discernment and wisdom given through your spirit, we can know you. We pray that you meet us again this morning as we discuss this next passage, this great epilogue to the book of the covenant, that you would again, by your spirit, reveal Christ to us, magnify him among us, make him beautiful to us, and to be more desired than any lesser petty thing. Thank you for those who are here this morning. I pray that your grace would be upon each one. In Christ's name, amen. We are moving on in Exodus. Today we're covering 13 verses, so we are trucking. Exodus 23. Starting in verse 20, we've been going through the book of the covenant by way of review. It's that section of Exodus that follows immediately after the Ten Commandments, and we've used a couple of terms. One is prescriptive law. What's that? The prescriptive law. So it's applicable to all time and people. We talked the Ten Commandments, another word in Hebrew. Uh, it can also be translated ten words or ten testimonies. The Ten Commandments were God's testimony of his nature, who he is. He reveals that to his covenant people. And then the book of the covenant, God shows how uh, they are to demonstrate his nature, his um, character in their time and space. It is a descriptive law that is given for the covenant people of God at that time. So we've come to the end of the book of the covenant, and uh, we have this passage here in in Exodus 23, 20, that some call the epilogue to the book of the covenant. And and our last section that we looked at, he's king off of the the land. Remember, we talked a lot about how to leave the land fallow for on the seventh year and all of the instructions that we had with the land. And that theme continues here to the epilogue, And God wraps it up with a promise regarding the land. So let's look at that. Verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. 
you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the, of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. First thing we want to look at, the very first thing is, could you turn the air down over in the corner there? Thank you. First thing we want to look at, <clears throat> 54 is fine. Um, who is this angel? Who is this angel? Always a good answer in Sunday school. Uh, some, some comment that the angel, thank you, sir, merely stands for the guidance and help of the Lord and is merely symbolic for God's care of Israel. But you, you, th you seem to think it's, it's Jesus. Why, what is the evidence that would support that view? Verse 20 through 22. Who is this angel? And why do you think so? My name is in him. Why is that significant? Okay, what did you say? Because our name is in Jesus. Because our name is in Jesus. It says, my name is in him. God's name is, Yahweh's name is in him. There's unity. There's unity there. Good. That's interesting. What else? Kind of a John 17 idea there. I'm in you, you're in me, we're one. What else about this angel? Yes, sir, Jeff. The thing that sticks out to me is I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and bring you to the place I've prepared. To guard you? That, uh, that language is used of Jesus. Is it hot? So he's leading to take you to a place, and you're saying that language is used of Jesus in the New Testament. In what way? I think you're right, but in what way? In, in preparing the way to heaven. Prepare, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. That kind of idea is there where the angel goes before, Christ goes before to prepare a place. Also the, what else? The good, shepherd, um, the good shepherd references in John. What a good shepherd does is guard and protects and guides. Okay, so the guarding, the angel guarding. Okay. Tells him to obey him. To obey him. Now that's interesting. Okay. So there's a there's some entity that he calls messenger or angel that is going before them 
They're to obey Him. Uh, He's to guard them. He's to go before them. And later on, we'll see, He's going to fight for them. Is this new in Exodus? Have we seen this? Have we seen this before? Where? The Exodus. That's a very nice answer. Thank you. Okay, so there was a there was a, a, a pillar of fire, a theophany of God when they're living, leaving. He's going out, and there's also a cloud behind to block the sun. And so the front and back, there was this thing going on. This is different, isn't it? This is a little bit. This has more of a creaturely look to it, doesn't it? A person look. Maybe creaturely isn't the right word. Do you remember? Turn, somebody turn for me to uh, Exodus 3, 2. So within the theophany of the burning bush, you see an angel, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And what does the angel of the Lord do in the theophany of the burning bush? He speaks. He commands. And Moses obeys. Take off your sandals as holy ground. Right? Look at Exodus 14, 19. What's going on here? Exodus 14, 19, what you got? Protecting. He's protecting. Could you read it for me? Sure. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So there's, a, again, a guarding that happens, and it's tagged to the angel of the Lord, this messenger, this presence of God. So you have, number one, you've got an angelic being who had been with them since they left Egypt. The beginning with Moses... As they're walking out of land, right? right? Walking out of Egypt. They're to obey his voice. They're to submit to his command, this angel of the Lord submitting to his command. He has the authority to forgive them or not. This angel of the Lord has the authority to forgive them or not. Okay. To Isaiah 63 9, it says, And their affliction, he was afflicted, and they angel of his presence saved them, and his love and his pity redeemed them because of the mountain of the Lord. So, kind of the prophecies of Christ. Right. There was a, and it's looking back and looking forward at the same time in Isaiah 63 9, you said? Yeah. So there is this. Um, He's been with them since they left Egypt. He redeemed them. He was part of the redemption, the redeemer, uh, out of Egypt. They are to obey his voice. He has the authority to forgive or not forgive their rebellion if they rebel against him. What else is going on here? What's this covenant conditioned upon that he's made with them? What does it say? Verse 22. 
obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. If then, it's a conditional clause, isn't it? If this condition happens, this result will also happen. Him being, God being an adversary to their adversaries, an enemy to their enemy, is conditioned upon their obedience to this person, this angel of the Lord. Obey the angel and I'll be, I'll I'll drive the people out. He'll drive the people out. Hear him, my voice is in him, my name is in him. When I speak, he speaks. Well, who's that sound like? Always a good answer in Sunday school. And I think most appropriate right here. You have all these conditions. This is deity. You obey him. You don't see this with Gabriel or Michael. They never claim, oh, I'll forgive you. They never say, obey me and then this will happen. God told me to tell you this. They always say, this says the Lord. Whenever they, they appear. I was coming to you to bring you the word of the Lord, but I was detained for a while, Daniel. You know, this, this is not coming from the angel. This is, he's a conduit. But here, the angel of the Lord, it rests upon him. The angel of the covenant, some other translations would say. It, it, it rests on him. Obey him, this will happen. It's a covenant conditioned on obedience to the angel of the Lord. This is a language of treaty. It's a covenant between God and Israel. And as they as the go through the book of the covenant, he's ending it up with the language that was very common. We've seen this in, in archaeology, the, the Hittite covenantal treaties. They, they have this if-then clause thing. This is the way it's going to work. It's the same kind of deal here. God uses the language of the culture to set in place an eternal purpose, the covenant uh, with his people. What are the promises? He starts out with this, uh, when my angel brings you, and I block them out. When my angel brings you to the Hittites, all the ites, and I block them out. The next statement seems to me to contemplate something very ludicrous. When I go before you and drive out all these nations... When I blot them out, incidentally, the them there in the Hebrew is him. What does that tell you? All these nations God refers to as him. I blot him out. There are two, peop- two types of people in the world. There are those who obey the angel of the Lord. And there are those who are against it. Who won't do it. Who are rebellious against the nature of God. And he views them as one person. And he will deal with them in one way. In this case, judgment through the conquest of Israel. But what a ludicrous statement. After I go in and I blot all him out, them out, um, don't worship their gods. That's a strange thing to say, don't you think? Why would he need to say that? I mean, he's done this incredible work. This incredible display of his power. This incredible provision of his very presence in the person of the angel of the Lord. After I do all this for you, don't worship other gods? Didn't he say that it was going to be a little bit at a time, though? 
Yes. What does that say about us that we, if we're, if it's delayed, if there's a time frame there, that they would, the, the, the warning, don't do it, that that even needs to be said, what does that say about us? We're fallen. Spiritual amnesia? I'm a, go ahead, what else? Yeah, Grant. Yeah. And so even though Satan may be out of the picture, in quotes, here, there's still all this mindset of all these other gods and all these other weeds that our flesh longs for. Right. Right. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. <clears throat> that line just rings in my head way too often. I'm <laughs> Notice that he doesn't say... He doesn't limit it to, don't just bow down to them. He calls for something very aggressive. What does he call them to do? Don't just withhold your worship from these other things. What does he say to do? Utterly overthrow them. What else? Break their pillars. Now, I know we're in East Texas. But a pillar... A, an altar, a stone um, thing. Jacob laid his head down on a stone pillar in the desert. This is a different idea. Um, yes, thank you. Our, our resident northerner says it's pillow. Um, a pillar has the idea of a solid structure deeply set, right? To break that down takes some work. Yes? It's also support, too. So it supports things that it. It's support to something that's false. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm distracted. Yeah, so it calls for radical destruction of a pagan false god in each area that they're going to conquer. Yeah, it's, I guess it's also like, like, like destroying a whole religion. Yeah. Yeah, that's pulling down a stronghold. Every thought that sets itself up against the preeminence of Christ. Yeah, the, kind of the, the idea. James says sacred pillars. Sacred so, pillars. I have a favorite pillar, but a sacred pillar is something but different. Like, I think it accentuates more of the, that's their, their big religion and their right. philosophy. Right, right. So the modes of thinking, the worldview that's there, something else that is antithetical, there's your $10 word for the day, uh, antithetical to Christ, to God, to the one God you know through this covenant and what he's done, destroy it. Why tolerate it? Don't turn it into a museum. Remember when the native peoples were here? 
No, don't turn it into a museum. Don't idolize it as the noble savage that used to be here. Destroy it. Destroy it. Don't say, oh, I remember in my old days before I was a Christian. Wasn't that funny? Right? Destroy it. Pull it out. Tear it down. Utterly bring it down. Utterly overthrow it. What are the promises he gives them for faithfully following his angel? Health, wealth, and prosperity. Yes, he does. It's exactly where we're going. Thank you for bringing up health, wealth, and prosperity. Yes, go ahead. That's a joke. He's still upholding his promise to Abraham even after Abraham is dead. Absolutely. Absolutely. In what way? What is, what is specifically... If we, if we use biblical terminology, what specifically is he promising? Removes sickness, removes... Uh, what does he start with? Miscarriage. What does he start with? Sick First thing. Water. First thing. Food and water. Thank you, Gabe. Uh-oh. Food and water. <laughs> I will bless your food and your water. You'll not want for what is needful for life. Obey the angel. Second, what do you see? Take away sickness. Remove diseases. You'll by nature operate as you were created to operate. Without hindrance. One and two are opposites, aren't they? One sustains life, bread and water. The other detracts from life disease, yet God addresses both of them. There's kind of a merism thing going on here from beginning to end. What is needful for us, he provides. Obedience to the angel, this is where he starts, with your person. Then he says this, none shall miscarry or be barren. What do you think he's going after there? Well, that none shall be Miscarrier or barren, <laughs> yes. What's the big picture? Yes. Well, again, it adds to the life thing. It's the creation of life. So you've got the sustaining life of bread and water. Okay. Miscarrier or barren. And then it, disease was detracted. Yeah, yeah. So then you have this, this promise of fertility. What do the pagan nations around them do? Uh, how, how do they view fertility? How do they accomplish, well... From a religious standpoint, so I'm going to turn this into another type of class. Um, the, right. They would use pagan rituals of various means to manipulate the gods that they worshipped so that they would have Babies, crops, and lots of animals. And God wants them to tear all that down so that there's nothing that they can point to. That, oh, oh, yeah, well, I kind of snuck up to that pillar and touched it, so that's why. So that there's nothing that detracts from Yahweh as the author of life. Um, it is Yahweh alone who brings increase in any endeavor by his own free will and not by our manipulation. His promise is, 
you will be fruitful. And what's the fourth thing he promises here? Aside from the conquering of the land, but in the land. What'd you say? Okay. Not yet. We're getting to the hornets in a minute. Um, I will fulfill the number of your days. What does that mean? Long life? Quality of life? The translation I have says full lifespan. Full lifespan. You won't be cut short. And not only that, you will be satisfied with life. So he satisfies the need. He removes the obstacle to living as we are created. He makes us fruitful and he makes us satisfied with life. This is the promise that he gives to the people of God, the people of Israel here. From or or because of, conditioned upon their obedience to the angel. Doesn't sound like a normal messenger to me. And then he he expands on the promise of verse 22. Look at verse 28. Does he say that he's going to give them an opportunity for a land and hopes they'll make the best of it? Is Is that his promise here? Do you want me to move a little bit to the... Okay. Does it, is, is he say, hey, this is a good shot for you guys. Open up a door, but, you know, you got you to... Gotta, it's your time now. Is that what he says? What's going on here? How are they to go into the land? What are they to do? He subdues, he increases, he guards, he keeps. The angel goes in and God is conquering through his presence. What's his battle strategy here, by the way? Hornets. Hornets? Is that metaphorical or do we have some kind of revelation? Jeremy Jenkins kind of thing. It's the Cobra helicopters with the faces that go, Apollyon, Apollyon, Apollyon. Is that what's going on here? Confusion. There's terror. My terror will proceed. My terror will go before you. I will cause them to be confused. Well, isn't that the problem with any worldview? We're terrified of judgment, so we try to suppress that hide the truth, hide from the truth, and yet, if we build it upon anything else, our understanding of reality, ultimately, it breaks down and causes moral confusion. That's just the nature of sin. And yet, he's going to display that through the means of a battle. And he will give the enemies of his people to them. Literally... I will give all your enemies to you backward. Uh, there's a Jewish translation of this, and Jewish uh, Torah, I think it was produced in the 1960s. It says, 
um, I, I will, uh, they'll turn tail. <laughs> the idea is fear and flight here. They'll be utterly dismayed and they'll be askeered um, and they'll be running. There, there will, it highlights the fear and flight of those whom Israel would be conquering. And he's not going to do it all at once. He's not going to do it in a year. Why? Okay. What's the point of that? I mean, well, I mean, I guess in terms of wisdom, it makes sense to increase your responsibility a bit at a time, so it's not overwhelming. Maybe. Okay. Well, they're, they're they're coming into a land that has already been planted and has already had buildings built and mm-hmm. has already had things done as that they're not going to have to build and they're not going to have to plant. And so, by doing it that way, it still preserves. Mm-hmm. He promised them, you're going into a land where there, there will be houses that you won't have to build. They're already built for you. There's gardens that are already planted that you won't have to plant. Um, and in giving it to them little by little, lest the land become desolate. Again, you see this keying off of the seven-year fallow idea. He goes into the land of, I'm giving it to you little by little for the good of the land. What is the picture here? Let's go back to Eden. Right? You have a piece of property that God creates out of all the chaos in the wilderness all around this place and it's a beautiful garden. He doesn't give them the whole world at once to tend to. You increase. You're fruitful. And you take it over little by little and make the world Eden. That's the goal. Right? And you see the same thing here. He, they go in. They conquer this place. And they till it, and they do work it, and then they go conquer this place, little by little, piece by piece, lest it overwhelm them. Um, I have a note here. If I blow through Duolingo exercise, I don't retain it. <laughs> I don't know why that came to me at 3 in the morning. Um, <laughs> if you conquer a large piece of property, and you have four guys... You're not going to be able to cultivate that and make it beautiful. The wildness will just be overwhelming. So you, you conquer little, you have babies, you're fruitful, and you have, and you have more people to work that and develop. And that's an inheritance for them. Go conquer your inheritance. You do the thing. Speaking of having babies, are you okay? You need to go? And... No, I'm good. Okay, good. All right. Not that it's yours, just so we know. It's, it's, it's a job thing. I understand. All right. Um, <laughs> now I lost my train of thought. Um, he sets the boundaries for them. He goes into this, you know, from the Euphrates to the Sea of the Philistines to the whatever. He goes the whole thing. And then again reiterates, make no covenant with them and their gods. And he, he brings this up this is twice now. Don't worship other gods after I do all this stuff for you. It seems crazy to bring that up, but he does. And I wonder why. Does history bear this out? Does, is this a legitimate warning from what we know from the rest of the Old Testament? Is this a legitimate warning from what we know about yesterday in our lives? 
Don't even let them live among you. Don't entertain the thought. We have such a tendency toward compromise. And that's the way it, wrap, uh, it wraps up. The book of the covenant is a warning that is ultimately what happens to them. They compromise. They don't obey the angel of his presence. God sends the angel of his presence here as the condition, obedience to him, is the condition for this covenant. Well, this lesson basically writes itself, doesn't it? He sends his angel again for another covenant, doesn't he? The final covenant, which is far superior, according to the author of Hebrews, to the one that was cut with Moses and the Hebrews in the desert. Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. The image of his presence. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Firstborn being not that he was created, but that he is preeminent. There's a psalm that talks about a king in Israel that God makes to be his firstborn, preeminent over all other kings of the earth. That's the idea here. Not a birth, not a creation, not a created being, but preeminent over all creation. For by him, this image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created. Can't create himself. Points to an eternal image of God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, this image of the invisible God, all things hold together. There's your unifying principle. Fridays, we talk about Schaefer's work. Um, how should we then now maybe possibly live? How should, shall we then live? How should we? Should, shall, it's a thing about art and culture and how there's this devolution into uh, the, the understanding of the little mechanics of everything. And there's no unifying principle over the particulars. Well, here you have it. The unifying principle... And in him, all things, all the particulars, hold together. And this image of the invisible God, this angel of his presence, that comes a second time for a better covenant, made promises too. He blessed the food. Bread and fish, remember that one? He blessed the water. Made it wine. That's a blessing. You'll not want... For what is needful for life, he says. And even more to the point, he said this. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6, 51. You'll not want for what is needful for life. He's sufficient. He's enough for what is needful for life. He removed diseases. And you'll by nature operate as you were created, not just physically, but more importantly, the diseases of the heart that crippled us from living as we were created to live. Um, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, 20. 
But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, tear it down, utterly destroy it, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Be who you are. And he has done that for you by removing the old self, removing the sin that resides there little by little. Right? He also promises that you will be fruitful. Not because we can manipulate the outcomes. Not because we can manipulate the outcomes of another's heart through our great marketing. uh, Buying the gas of people to get them into church, those kinds of nonsensical things. Um, but because he changes heart. And as we are obedient to him and faithful to him and proclaiming Christ and him crucified, he works because uh, of, of his spirit changing the hearts of, of men. Um, he gives the increase. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything other than faithful. Right? Is nothing but only God who gives the growth. The fourth promise he makes is that in Christ you will fulfill the number of your days. You will be satisfied with life day after day after day after day. Um, people spend a lot of time on John 3.16, and they should. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good verse. It's a, a pretty bold statement. But how many read what follows? I have yet to see a sign on the football game that says John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send his son, this angel of his presence, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever trusts him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Two people. Two types of people in the world. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Skip on down to verse 36. Jesus says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. He doesn't give all these promises all at once in a year, does he? Anybody arrive there? There, Yep, I'm living now in the full-orbed expression of the glory of God in my life. Right now, bow before me. No, we don't live that way. It's day by day. There's some progress. Remember the graph? There's some progress. There's some failure. There's some failure. (laughs) But there's always grace upon grace, as it says in John 1.16. And it's worked in us by his spirit as we live in the means of grace which he has given us. Prayer, the word, meaningful fellowship through one-to-ones and other kinds of things that we're doing like this morning. Second Corinthians 3, 
Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Two types of people. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed all at once. Is that what it says? Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Incidentally, if you're ever looking for a great Trinitarian verse on why the Holy Spirit is God, there you go. Transformation from pagan to priest, from sinner to saint, only happens through beholding the glory of the Lord, the angel of his presence, the angel of the covenant, who has a right to our obedience, and that's Christ. We're transformed by beholding Jesus, not some Jesus we've made up in our minds, not some Jesus that, um, <laughs> that makes me feel better, when I disobey the Jesus of the Bible, because he forgives me because that's his job, we are transformed by beholding the Jesus of the Bible, not by clinging to our drugs, our pornography, our clamoring for the approval of others at any cost, our fits of rage, our gossiping tongues, our addictions in all their various forms, our hopes for change through a mere man, all of that. We don't cling to that. We cling to Christ beaten, bloodied, bruised. Behold Christ, risen, victorious. Look on him as you're captivated by what he has revealed to us in this book. Don't bow down to their gods. Make war against those pagan altars set deep in your heart. Fight like the war is won because it has been. What was the last phrase he said on the cross? Do you remember? Is it? Yes, it is. That struck terror into the heart of his enemies. The enemies of sin, death, and hell. It's finished. Trust him. If you love him, obey what he commands. The covenant that we are under now is conditioned upon his obedience. Not like the former one that's conditioned on theirs. It's conditioned on his. You see the change. That's why it's a greater covenant. Only he can fulfill it. And what he has done has been given to us. So be who you are in Christ. Any comments? Any questions? I went a little bit over. Kevin, I, yes, sir. I can't help but um, think of the passage in 1 Peter 1. It talks about the Holy Spirit kind of in this life. The Holy Spirit is a deposit given to us for an inheritance yet to come, an inheritance that doesn't fade away and is undefiled and everything, by faith is kept for us until we acquire possession of it. Right. 1, 3-5, and it's like 
the same thing about Christ that it's saying in this passage and to the Israelites in the promised land is mm-hmm. for us as Christians with heaven being, being with Jesus. Right. That's the big promise. Yeah. The, the drive to move forward and to fight against indwelling sin is the hope that one day we'll be healed of our disease. We are healed of our disease and that we're given a new nature, but it's a slow, little by little, conquering in our own heart. Um, Yeah, good. Anything else? All right. Um, There's so much more to say. That's what all people say that have run out of notes. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we will move on. Thank you, Father, for your spirit who is given to us to testify of Jesus. We often think of that phrase as a means of giving us the words to say when we're witnessing to someone uh, about the gospel. But I thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit glorifies and testifies to the beauty of Christ in our own hearts that when we are distracted by lesser things, he wells up, he reminds us, he paints the picture from the words in this book of the greater worth of Jesus over all that so easily besets us. Help us to trust him, obey him, love him, more than the yippy little things at our ankles that would distract us from the promise of our inheritance, which is Christ. I love that verse in 1 John. We don't know what we're like yet, but we know that when we see him, we will be made like him for we will see him as he is. What a great hope. Bury it deep in our hearts. Let it color and transform everything that we do. Not just limited to today, not just limited to a Wednesday night deal or a Friday night deal. Let us breathe it in. Let it cover everything, this hope that we have in the promise of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.